Um, yeah, that's kind of the timeline. So good stuff. Be praying for us. I'm really excited about what's, what the Lord has going on. And this morning, we will be continuing in our series on Ecclesiastes in chapter 9. Um, I want to read just the, the first. I want to read the whole chapter. We will be going through the whole chapter, but Pastor Lee just read the middle portion. I want to read the first portion here to you and then go right into our intro here. Beginning in verse 1, it says, But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go on to the dead, go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. You're thinking, "Woo, that is exciting, you know, scripture here. Um, so, yeah. So as we go into this, I, I wanna, we have to start defining some things here. And I just want to warn you up front, so stuff I may say today um, may be uh, a very new idea. Maybe not, but I think a lot of you would be like, I never heard that before. I'm still honestly learning it myself. But I want to define death biblically and define life biblically. Because the text that Pastor Lee read about enjoying the woman, you know, the wife you love and, and the eat and drink with a merry heart for God's approval. Solomon is talking about death and he transitions to life. And so before we start breaking down all these elements, I want to define biblically what is death and what is life. All right? So let's start because Solomon starts off with dealing with the topic of death. And so let's look at this idea of death. How do we define death biblically? Uh, we have to uh, remove it from so much of our you know, modern day kind of uh, understanding of things. When you start digging, you realize like a portion of it is biblically informed, but then there's like all these other things throughout the centuries of Western you know, history that's kind of infiltrated our worldview, if you will. And so you know, we, we make comments and things about life and death that we think or ultimately a biblical representation, but if you dig deeper, you're like, wait a minute, that's not really, you know, fully there in Scripture. And so that's what I want to do for you today. To understand death, we have to start in Genesis, right? And so, well, yeah, the idea of life became, you know, that was first, right? Genesis 2-7. Life came when God went down and it said he formed the man out of the dust of the earth and it said he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That's found in Genesis 2, 7. Uh, the word for the breath of life, that word breath uh, is translated elsewhere as, as spirit in the Old Testament. So as we see life initially, and this is where things, you know, like, oh, okay. Our spirits and our bodies were one. It was never God's intention to have them separate. Life itself as it began meant that our souls, our spirits, however you want to define that 
um, you know, whatever language you're going to use for the idea of this immaterial, you know, part of ourselves, it was completely united. God breathed that into us. And in Eden, when we first were created by God, we were one in spirit and body. And that was God's design for us, right? We know that this is his design because what happens at the end of this book, right? What happens to our physical bodies after death? It says it's, it's risen back. And Paul says it's, it's risen back to an imperishable state where our souls and our bodies are reunited together with God again, just like in Eden, and we live forever, not as these immaterial you know, uh, uh, souls floating around, but no, like a physical earth with our physical bodies forever and ever. That was God's design. That was the original idea of life, all right? And it, with dependence on God, with the access to the tree of life, this union of, of, of our physical and spiritual nature, which was one, was intended to really go on forever, I believe, right? We had access to the tree of life. We, we could be with God. And the idea was we were given life. We were given eternal life forever and ever in God's presence, right? And of course, we know how long that lasted. God gave him essentially you know, the option of faith. He says, I, I gave you life. You have the option of trusting me here. I want to tell you, don't touch this tree. There's knowledge there that you never intended to have, but you have access to everything else, including the tree of life. I need you to trust me with this one. I'm your God. I'm your Lord. Obey me and love me as Lord and trust me. And we didn't trust him. We wanted things that did not belong to us. We wanted to be our own Lord and our own God. And therefore, the fall entered into the story. And so if you look at Genesis 3 and on throughout biblical history, we see the definition. I don't know. This is my, you know, three parts here. I'm sure it can be defined better elsewhere. But we can define death according to Scripture as a cessation of physical life, separation of God and man, and also separation of soul and body. So this is where we need to start twerking with our, our worldview here, all right? As Christians, we often talk about dying and going to heaven, which obviously Solomon, even he'll, he'll touch on this in chapter 12. He, he talks about the spirit going, returning back to God who gave it, right? Um, Jesus on the cross, right? You'll be with me in paradise. That's the Greek word Greek for garden, if you know that, right? You'll be with me in the garden again. Like, we know that's the case, right? David said he lost his child. He'll, I'll go to him one day. He won't come back to me. So yes, that is true, okay? But life must be more defined than this. It must be more robust than this because this idea of our soul separating from our body and going to heaven, that was not God's original design, right? That wasn't part of his plan when he made us. He didn't want that to be separate, but we chose it, right? And his grace, he accepts that, right? And there's, not, there's very little said about this in-between state between, of heaven, between the new heavens and new earth and today. Very little knowledge of what's, what that really is, right? Um, we can, we can, there's a handful of verses. And it's an interesting study, but there's not just a lot of information there. What happens between death and when Christ returns? There's just not a lot of information. But the idea of that separation, that was not intended in God's original design. We were intended to be one in spirit and in body, and he's going to reunite that at the end of days. But ever since in this time of separation, right, when we lost the reality of the fullness of life, right? When that um, e eternal aspect of being with God forever and ever was removed and we chose death, right? Ever since then, we've been yearning for eternal life. We've been seeking for immortality. It's almost like the seed is planted inside of us and, and we just, we want to find, we want something bigger than anything in this life 
can actually satisfy. We have something that's great, but surely there's something bigger here, right? And it's the idea when we do lose, you know, a, a loved one and death happens, it doesn't seem natural. Like, this doesn't make sense. This person should still be here. This does not fit into, you know, emotionally how we perceive human beings. This person should not pass away. This doesn't fit. We all have experienced this. We all have those feelings. And we're all seeking for that life that simply does not end. This is fascinating. You might know the oldest story. We were only found it like in the 1800s, I think. But with the oldest written kind of story is older than the Bible. Anybody know? The Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Any, any nerdy people out there read it? I saw a thumbs up from a teacher. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's the old Sumerian like poem, okay? It dates about 15 to 1800 years before Solomon. This is old stuff, over 4,000 years old, okay? But you know what the topic of it, it, The first story we managed to write down and it was preserved for us. You know what the topic of it is? The guy's seeking for eternal life. It's fascinating, right? He has this friend, okay? Well, it's how he describes death. And we, what we just read, listen to this. This is from this poem. It says, no one can see death. No one can see the face of death. No one can hear the voice of death. Yet there is a savage death that snaps off mankind. For how long do we build a household? How long do we seal a document? For how long do brothers share the inheritance? The gods who form destiny determine destiny with them. They established death and life, but they did not make known the ways of death. And so he, in this story, he's wrestling with death because his best friend in Kindu dies. This is what he says. My friend whom I love deeply. This is, again, 4,000 plus years old. My friend who I love deeply who went through every hardship with me in Kindu. My friend whom I love dip, deeply who went through every hardship. The fate of mankind has overtaken him. Six days and seven nights I mourned over him. It would not allow him to be buried. I began to fear death and so roamed the wilderness. The issue of Enkindu, my friend, oppresses me. So I have been roaming long roads through the wilderness. How can I stay silent? How can I be still? My friend whom I love has turned to clay. Enkindu, whom I love, has turned to clay. Am I not like him? Will I not lie down, never to get up again? So Gilgamesh spoke to Utampishtism. There you go. I don't know how to pronounce that. Saying... That, that is why I must go on to see Utampishtism, whom they call the far away. So this guy, I want to try to say it again, this guy, Utan, whatever, the story goes, he had eternal life. He had immortality. And Gilgamesh's response to his best friend dying, I got to go find this guy to get eternal life from him. And he fails. But the whole idea of why I'm reading this is to show you, for thousands and since the earliest days when we can write on a stone, these are tablets we found like rocks with this poet. Since we can scribble down poems, we've been searching for eternal life. It's fascinating, right? Just even recently, this has not ended whatsoever, just a few years back in Silicon Valley, some of the nation's uh, most uh, you know, bright and brilliant and wealthiest and most powerful, influential came together to talk about this very topic, All right, to try to figure out, is there a way with our modern science and modern invention and technologies that we can somehow continue to extend life and even through science, through medicine, through various new treatments and new discoveries, could we, you know, live for 500, 1,000 years? Could it never really end? So they had all these scientists come and all this different research they were doing and talking about things like, oh, yeah, we'll just, you know, import young blood into people who are older, and that way it'll rejuvenate their cells. We'll do new stem cell research and rebuild their cells at the you know, molecular level. We'll, we'll do, you know, all these different theories. 
Okay, well, the magic pill that will reorder your genes so they'll live forever. You know, all these different theories and research and things where they were talking about. The New Yorker wrote an article about it. The article was called The Quest to Live Forever. This is how, this is written by a guy named Tad Friend. That's an interesting name, Tad Friend. And his, uh, the, the last paragraph, this is how he summed up everything. The wish to preserve life as we know it, even at the cost of dying, is profoundly human. We are encoded with the belief that death is a mother of beauty, and we are encoded, too, with the contradictory determination to remain exactly as we are forever, or at least for just a bit longer, before we have to go. We are determined to extend our lives and try to live as long as possible at the cost of $3.5 trillion a year in healthcare costs. And we've done a good, decent job. In the 1900s, we've extended our lives by 30 years in the last century, on average, right? So I asked the question, I was reading this stuff and thinking about the definition of life biblically and death. Why um, do we think life only has meaning um, as long as we're alive? Like, why are we just so anxious to extend our life, spend all this money on healthcare, do all that we can? Why are we being, you know, searching for this for, forever and ever? The only conclusion I could come to in my, you know, small, you know, mind here is that we must deep down think life only has meaning as long as our heart is beating, right? As long as we keep that heart beating, then life has meaning. Then purpose is still there. Only as long as we can keep our heart beating. I know it's not as simple as that, but I think one of the foundational elements is that we all maybe instinctively or intuitively think is that as long as my heart is beating or my loved one's heart is beating, there's still meaning here. There's still meaning in life, Right? which is obviously, you know, secularism that has seeped into things. So then as, as we now understand God's original intentions for life, we just define that, and the reality of, of death, right, when those three things, cessation of life, separation of God and man, separation of soul and body. Let's now look at Solomon's words as he deals with death and life, all right, and how the New Testament gives color to Solomon's words. So here's the roadmap, and it's, I know this makes no sense. I'm breaking every rule that they tell you how to preach, but it is what it is. Solomon doesn't write very clearly. So, <laughs> so what we're doing, I'm going to deal with verses 2 and 6 and 11 to 12 and talk about the nature of death, right? And then we're dealing with the assurance of our future in God's hands, which is really the first half of verse 1. We're going back to that. And then we're going to jump to what Pastor Lee read earlier, the life of faith and the life of death, and the light of death, 7 through 10. And then we're going to end with 13 through 18 with a quiet wisdom of faithful living. I reordered everything, I know, so, but that's what we can do to make sense of it. So, right, let's skip ahead. We just kind of talked about this, but let's, you know, revisit those verses, right? The nature of death, right? It's the same for all, happens to good and evil, the clean and unclean. The other verses he gives after that paragraph he, he, he revisits those thoughts. If you skip down to verse 11 through 12, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun, that's a hint, by the way. He writes very, like, you might think, like, very, almost like nihilistic, like, geez, Solomon, you know, like, there's more to life than just this. Under the sun, you think there's a hint what he's trying to say by mentioning those things? You'll see him, he interlaces his theological understanding of life and death, you know, throughout his observations of, like, kind of just practical, day to day kind of life. He throws in the bigger realities. Under the sun, life here, only here under the sun. He says, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish 
that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. And that's to be read, understood in conjunction to the earlier verses we read, you know, about um, is an evil done all under the sun? The same event happens to all, right? How we're all, you know, evil naturally, then we all go to the dead. So the idea, he, he talks about death really in three ways here. He says, first off, it's, it's unpredictable. We just simply don't know when it's coming. We can predict it, you know, if, if, if a certain organ of the body gets sick, you know, you might not last if, you know, this happens or whatever. It's unpredictable. It does not discriminate, right? You can be the most righteous guy, the most holiest guy in the world. You can be, you know, the most wicked guy. The wicked guy lives, lives to be like 110 years old and the righteous guy, you know, doesn't. And so, and also lastly, it's, it's, it's not just, right? It's not just. We look at them and we say there's something in, unjust about death here. We can all agree with those things, all right? And, and the imagery of a fish swimming that is just, you know, scooped out of the water. And we've all experienced that. It's like it, it doesn't, ultimately from our, you know, singular view, it does not ultimately make sense. And it seems very surprising. It comes out of nowhere. It seems unplanned. And almost as if, you know, as if. Is there really a God behind all of this? Because from our understanding, it seems to be very random. But we say that in light, though, okay, it's not so hopeless after all. We're going to move on. Look how he started all of this. But I lay it to heart examining it, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, are in the hand of God. That's how he starts, okay? So we're going to talk about that now. We just talked about death and all that, but where's the hope in this? He says, well, we're in the hands of God. What is he referring to? He's referring to the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God, saying that God, in all of our deeds, in all of our lives, they are in his very hand, right? So many times speaking with people, um, even just the past you know, few weeks, this has happened again. It happens, I'm sure it'll happen many times, and I'm sure you've run into these kind of questions too. People try to understand this. If you're talking about a God who's sovereign, right, but all this stuff happens, and he's supposed to be this good God, I would never wish this upon my enemy that happened to my you know, whatever friend, or et cetera, so how can a good God allow this to happen? doesn't make any sense, right? And they try to get philosophy and all these different approaches to try to break it all down rationally, understand it all, right? And I used to try to do that too, and I realized that's a foolish game because um, you're not going to find any answers because no one has. You understand that as soon as our, in our Western world, we, we, we used to have um, the majority of you know, all the philo philosophical kind of conversation, if you will, throughout Western history just kind of assumed the existence of God, all right? But then eventually, we started trying to abandon that and just uh, focusing on, on reason alone and, and what, in science and things like that, um, that we can uh, try to figure out the world without God, right? And what did that lead to? A complete dead end, right? It led to, um, eventually, this, this World War II kind of scenario where we had major world powers operating beneath atheism and tens of millions of people died. That didn't work. So then what happened after that? Oh, there's no truth. We give up, <laughs> right? But then now we're realizing we can't go there. There must be some kind of, you know, I'm not any kind of philosophy guy, but all to say, we, we've not been able to figure this out, right? So what is the beginning of our only hope of humanity? 
Well, we abandoned God trying to understand the world and it led to all those tens of millions of people dying. Surely that's not the answer. Surely we need God. And the scripture says, of course you do because all of life is in his hands. All of life is in God's hands, right? David, one time he sinned greatly in 1 Chronicles 21. And uh, he took his senses and the Bible says, don't do that for, you know, for reasons of, uh, of, um, of um, profiting kind of from that. And so uh, God says, look, you sin, you have three options, Right, he says, you have three years of famine, three months of invading armies, or three months of just, or three days of me sending like pestilence and disease amongst you from my own hand. What was David's response? He says, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So David knows that to be in God's hands directly, beneath his direct action, even under judgment, he still knew that was my only hope. I'd rather be under God's hands than anyone else because that's, that's really the only hope I have in life, even when it involves him receiving judgment from God. So the idea here in Solomon's main meaning is God is in control, he is good, and if you love him and you are in his hands, rest in that. As Jonathan Edwards had to wrestle with when he first um, dealt with his faith, he had to find rest in that, not understanding. He had to find faith. He had to find rest, even when life is unpredictable. So right now I'm reading The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe to my kids, and I hate it because I showed them the movie like a year ago before I read them the book, and they like know what's happening next. I'm like, oh, what a fail. So it is what it is. But, um, you know, still the book is always, you know, generally better than the movie. And, you know, of course there's this famous description, you know, C.S. Lewis, when he's describing God as this lion, right, it's just genius, just like Lewis is genius. And... Um, this is kind of how I want you guys to understand what I'm trying to say today. Uh, after explaining to these kids, this beaver, they were talking to the, Aslan's a lion, not a man. This is a conversation they had between Lucy and this beaver. Oh, is he quite safe? He's probably heard this before. I still feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So God, this is how he describes ultimately our life beneath God. We all know that life is unpredictable and it does seem rather unsafe at times. Whoever said anything about God being safe, but our hope is in that he is good right? Life isn't about being safe, right? But we have hope in the goodness of God. And this is the result of that hope. This is the result of looking at the tomorrow and saying, I just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, right? I've had a lot of bad yesterdays and I hope tomorrow's not as bleak as yet, but I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. But we have this hope in the goodness of God. So what was the result of this? We're going to look into the New Testament here in a minute to help define this further. But look what Solomon goes with this. He dumps to some of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. That word vain it really means vapor. I think that's a bad word to throw. It means like you can get a spray bottle, spray, how long does a mist last? Like, psh, that's what that word means. Think of a spray bottle, psh, that's your life, right? All your days of your vain life, of the vaporous life 
that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So the result of, of clinging to hope in God in the midst of unpredictability about tomorrow and the inevitability of you know, death will happen to us one day, he, he goes to this amazingly joyful verses, right? If you really think about what these verses are saying, I kept thinking, like, why go here? What is the common theme in these three verses or, or four or whatever? How, how, how do we understand them? Where is he really getting at? And I kept thinking of the word freedom, right? The result of such a life of faith in the midst of uncertainty gives you freedom. It gives you freedom to drop your anxiety about tomorrow. It gives you freedom to say, you know what? Life, it's going to be bigger than this. We're all in the hand of God. I don't have to worry about finding my meaning and my achievements. I know God. I'm in his hands. I don't have to worry about finding um, uh, trying to find my fullness in anything else. I, I know that my future, my life is wrapped up in the hand of God. Right? Freedom, we find freedom to know that everything you have, if you have anything in this life and your, hand is in, your life is in his hands, anything you have then logically, that's a gift. That's what Solomon's trying to say. You, you have gifts in front of you today, right? And he, he's redirecting our attention for maybe the, the future, the past. And he says, look, you know, forget about these things. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a grand plan. It's in God's, you know, unpredictable timing in his future, but we have hope in him. But look, let's get your eyes focused on the now. Return your gaze to what you do have, what you are guaranteed, at least today. We look at what we're guaranteed also tomorrow in the New Testament, how it gives color to this. But right now he's talking about, look at today. You're guaranteed today. Everything you have today is a gift from God. And everything you have is intended to point you to him. So you know that you can now cease from striving since he is God. And all of these simple good gifts you have, and this is where else I went with it next, they are glimpses, back to our introduction, glimpses of Eden. This is what I mean. What would life have been like in the Garden of Eden? We're with God. We're with each other. We have a whole garden full of delights and full of gifts at our fingertips, right? We wouldn't have been worried about tomorrow. We knew God was there, that he was in control, right? And we enjoyed the day before God, all the gifts that surrounded us. We would have enjoyed those and found delight in those and had an undercurrent of supernatural contentment, satisfaction, and joy continually there. Anxiety would have simply not been known whatsoever, and so Psalm is directing us to think about that kind of life. He's saying it's yours if you know God and trust in God and his hand with all the unpredictability that comes with this fallen world because of the fall, you can find this Eden-like life even today. Therefore, enjoy life, right? This is all by faith. By faith, enjoy life. Habakkuk 2.4 says a righteous will live by faith. And there's a freedom that comes of that faith. He says, enjoy family, right? And I'll just expand upon his thoughts here because he's referring to very mundane things, right? Bread, drink, you know, garments, um, your, your spouse, your work, your vocation. 
Enjoy it. Family, friends, community, love, intimacy, relationships, all this, these simple daily things we have in life. Solomon says they're your rewards. And sadly, our eyes are often focused elsewhere as if we have control on the other things, right? And Solomon's saying, no, you have the gift of faith before God. Your life is in his hands, therefore enjoy it as if Eden is yours even today. So now we're going to go to the New Testament because the New Testament just gives color to this. It's like a blank black and white coloring sheet. The New Testament just fills it all in with color. I love it. How does this point to Jesus? As we're going to see, Jesus fulfills all these things. And this is the part where I may stretch your mind a bit, okay? Um, The kind of life that Solomon is talking about, the New Testament actually calls eternal life. So just hear me out. John 3, 36. If you read this verse before, I'm sure you have. If you've taken time to slowly read it, you would have noticed something that does not fit into our normal, you know, today's modern evangelical Christian kind of interpretation of this. It says this, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is missing? If you read that, you may have been expecting it to say something like, will have eternal life. I'm no Greek expert, but that word has. It's a present tense word. It's talking about now. Whoever believes in the Son has today, right now, eternal life. There is no future tense here. It's talking about your day right now. This is what the whole message of John is trying to say. To know Jesus means that you can, your eternal life begins today. It's yours today. Remember, your soul was never meant to be separated from bodies. God's mission in the resurrection was to reunite the two eternally, removing sin forever, abolishing death forever, and reestablishing himself with his people like an Eden by giving you his spirit today. His spirit is a deposit of this future reality. Elsewhere, John 17 says this, this is eternal life. What, dying and going to heaven? That's part of it, but look what it is, that you know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Therefore, knowing God through Jesus Christ gives you eternal life today. The fullness of life can be yours even today. Then sanctification, the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus becomes the removal of all that is already legally removed from us, sin. But when sin is defeated and we start finding joy and realizing, wait, washing dishes now can be this act of worship. There was just food on this plate. I got to clean it, but thank you for this food. Thank you for this gift. When you start finding joy in these mundane things, your life is fully in the hand of God and you see this and through Christ it's fully now yours, your joy Founded in simply knowing God and Jesus Christ gives you that Eden life today. That's the deposit of eternal life given to you today. There's great power in this Eden-like life today. There's this book I just finished by uh, Thomas Merton. He's a Catholic uh, monk. He lived in the early 1900s. He wrote this book called Seven Story Mountain. I highly recommend it. Yes, it's Catholic, but it's absolutely fantastic. This is um, autobiography. It reads like the St. Augustine's Confessions. It's great. This is what he says. When he was a kid... He boarded with this French family, I think it was French, uh, for a bit. And this is how he described his French family. He was, he was probably a kid, right? He said this, it is, great, it is a great pleasure for me to remember such good and kind people and to talk about them, although I no longer possess any details about them. I just remember 
their kindness and goodness to me and their peacefulness and their utter simplicity. They inspired real reverence. And I think in a way, they were certainly saints. And listen to this. And they were saints in the most effective and telling way, sanctified by leading ordinary lives in a completely supernatural manner. I think that's what Solomon's asking us to do today. Leading ordinary lives in a completely supernatural manner, sanctified by obscurity, by usual skills, by common tasks, by routine, but skills, tasks, and routine which received a supernatural form from grace within and from that habitual union of their souls with God in deep faith and charity. <clears throat> their, uh, their family, I don't know, I misspelled something. Their family and their church were all that occupied and these good souls and their lives were full. What a spectacular description of a Christian family, right? And the ordinary skills and routines of life, they were living it supernaturally. The joy they carried for the rest of his life always remained on Thomas Merton. It was a supernatural life. And it can be yours today, right? By knowing Jesus. He can reconcile us back to our Father. We're in his hand. And Solomon says, enjoy life. Enjoy it. This is where we're going to end today. I can keep going forever. I probably got to not do that. Um, there's more I want to skip a little bit. So the last paragraph here, we're going to go to the verse 13 now because we're skipping around. He says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I think Solomon in all of his uh, flowery poetic language here, why would he go straight to wisdom? This, this uh, hearken to, to wisdom right here after mentioning these things. I think what he's trying to say, and commentators generally agree, the connection between this is saying, I just gave you wisdom of how to live. I just gave you uh, wisdom of how to live this, this, this kind of supernatural life of faith, right? This, this faithful life before God. And remember that wisdom is more powerful and, and stronger and more meaningful than even any kind of might you may have as a king, any kind of glory you may receive in this life, any kind of um, attention you may receive in this life, the wisdom I just gave you is far superior to any of that stuff. Just like this poor man, people didn't remember him, but he saved the city. So remember that wisdom is much greater than being known as a king who saved the city. Pay attention. He's saying, listen to me. This is important. That's what he's trying to say. Listen to my words. Living with this kind of wisdom, living a supernatural, ordinary life, right? Look at the New Testament here in a minute, too. Um, it may not be a glamorous life. Some of you may be called to do something crazy with your life, right? And you, you may, like, God may say, like, look, just get rid of your stuff and move to, like, you know, the jungles of Africa and go find an unreached tribe and translate the Bible into the land. Like, I have friends that have done that. And they heard the call and they went, so maybe some of you today, something radical like that is your lot. 
Please, if that's you listening, go. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. That could be now, right? If that's you. But for most of us, for many of us, that may not be our calling. Maybe that you're sitting in a regular old city like Tom's River or Brick or wherever you may live, doing a regular old job, having regular old kids, living in a regular old house, in regular old, well, New Jersey's not, Jersey's not really regular, but, you know, in New Jersey, all right? It may not be a glamorous life. It may not get a lot of recognition, right? Listen to what Paul says. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what Paul is saying is not go be a, you know, this quiet little you know, hermit in your house and just kind of be peaceful and sit there. He says, no, but when you live this kind of godly, quiet, dignified life, finding joy in the mundane things like your bread and your drink and et cetera and so forth, this, is the, this should be the result. So this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. What Paul is kind of getting at, I believe, is saying that when you live that kind of life, the inevitable result is that of evangelism. People should look at your life and say, what's going on? How is this guy so stoked changing the third poop of a single morning of their kid? Right? I've done it so many times. You're like, Really? When you find joy in that, like you're not grumbling, you're complaining, you're saying, thank you for this child. Thank you that his insides are working very well today. <laughs> right? There's no issues here. Thank you. You find joy in this simple stuff, right? And people looking on to that kind of life, they're going to ask you questions. They're going to say, how is it that you're, you're so joyful? Even when hard things happen, when those unpredictable events happen to you, and you still have that joy. And you still have that undercurrent of contentment. Even the most tragic event happens and you're still mourning and you're still weeping, but they know that you still have a, a meaning and a purpose and a hope. Even in those times, I'll look at you and say, where is this hope coming from? Right? And Peter calls us, be ready, guys. When people ask, where does that hope come from? We get to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. So in closing, this simple life is pleasing to God. It's a life of faith. The result of this, right, is your life will be one of a walking evangelist, right? The, your, your rhythms of life, your habits in life. It's going to be that light on the hill, Right? and your family, and your neighborhood, from all people looking around you, they're going to see that inside of you. They're going to see your works as they're glorifying God, right? And people want to know him as a result of that. So remember this. Death is indeed coming for you and I, right? But one day, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He will abolish death forever. And the eternal life we were able to glimpse today will be dwarfed in comparison to the eternal life that is to come when he returns, when he raises your perishable body from the grave and grants you the imperishable resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth. In that glorious place, there'll be no more death, no more crying, tears, or pain. And that is our ultimate hope. That is what the gospel has accomplished and will accomplish and that 
will end our quest and our hunt for eternal life. But as for you today, this day is all that we're really guaranteed. So go and live a supernatural life. Grab a hold of your eternal life given to you today and enjoy this day in Jesus. Go enjoy your spouse with all their quirks and all, your loud and rambunctious children or grandchildren. Go home and eat a simple lunch and have your, your favorite drink over your most basic mundane dinner, even if it's water or wine, and thank God for it. He's already approved and said that's good, so what are you waiting for? Go and wash the dishes with a smile, thankful for the simple food that is now in your belly and off the plate. That is God's gift from you, to you. Go and watch and listen to the beautiful birds flying in your backyard. Listen to the rain falling today. Take pleasure in it. Go for a long walk. Find people you never met to go talk to along the way. Invite your neighbor to sit on your front porch this afternoon and to chat. Change that diaper and bathe your young children with joy. And tomorrow morning, whatever your task or work is for that day, do it with all of your might before God and enjoy it. Do it with thanksgiving. This is the ultimate kind of seize the day passage, right? Motivated by your hope in the gospel of knowing Jesus and placing your life in his hands, freeing yourself from all anxiety about tomorrow, freeing yourself from needing to find joy and meaning in achievements or other people. Mundane life becomes where we see God's presence and his blessing. So people will see that and they will ask questions. And I would just ask you, be ready to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ and tell them that he is even now extending this hope to them, if only they repent of their sins and turn their hearts to be his. So thank you, Jesus. We pray that he comes soon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, this wonderful message of hope that we are giving. I pray that your spirit would just give us, um, you, you would fill us, Lord. And I'm talking to myself because I know that I can be a grumbler and complainer uh, even this past week. I know that uh, that happened more than I wanted it to. Um, so Lord, uh, help us to see everything in our day-to-day -day life as a true gift from you. And even this afternoon, let us not waste it, Lord, and, and forgetting about your hand in our very presence, but Lord, let us look at even this day and what we're given today and just to enjoy it, Lord, before you. These are your gifts to us. We know that our future is secured by the deposit of your, of your Holy Spirit, and we have the freedom to enjoy today. Thank you, Jesus, for this. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Um, as we close, um, just for communion, I'm going to call our ushers to come forward.